Brendan informed me this morning that it's hard to get used to me now I'm wearing adult clothes. <laughs> I just wanted to tell you because I didn't think it was funny, but you clearly do think it's funny. I just wanted you to experience it. <laughs> well, as I said before, my wife's taken over my wardrobe, which is an improvement. And also, I become an Australian citizen this afternoon. Exactly. Yesterday, I didn't care who was in government. Today, I care a lot who was in government. I'm going to be one of you. It is the end of what has been a long journey towards us really being settled in Australia. And praise God. I think I'm the final one as well. You guys are Australians. The Williams are Australians. Even my wife's an Australian. Kids. No, that's right, Lydia. Very good. I actually forgot to put your form in as well, my love. Just me, Josh, and Amy. <laughs> I just thought I think it would be better to break it to you in public like this. <laughs> Safety in numbers is the way we operate. All right, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 17. If you want a title for today's message, it is A Cautionary Tale. And oh my, what an important passage of Scripture we find ourselves in this morning. You see, between Exodus chapter 15 and Exodus chapter 19, we find ourselves on journey with Israel between the Red Sea and Mount Sinai. And oh my, what a journey it has been. God has already, in His grace, saved them. They are free. They've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the blood of the Lamb of alone. He has wonderfully saved them and even brought them through the sea. But now he's sanctifying them. He's seeking to help them understand what it means to follow him as Lord. He's seeking to help them understand what it is to be part of God's people. And he's seeking to help them understand how, in fact, it is going to go well for them. How they can put themselves and a place of blessing in the way he's created it in the universe. And this is then what we hear in Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. Let's catch up with them on this story. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us 
or not? Let's pray. Lord, your word is amazing. We think we're reading the word, but actually the word all the time is reading us. Spirit, would you speak to our hearts afresh today? Would you open our eyes to behold the wonders of this word? Open our eyes to be able to see you. Open our eyes to be able to see even ourselves. Our faces are in this picture. Pull back the curtain, Lord, so that we may see. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when I first became a pastor, I was 25 years old, and the first pastoral responsibility I was given was to look after and lead youth and young adults. I was 25 years old, my wife was 20 years old. I loved the role. It was awesome. It was awesome to spend tons of time with young people and young adults. It was awesome to spend time seeking to influence the next generation with the gospel, to live their lives passionately for Jesus, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. Do it all for the Lord. I loved preaching that over and over again and seeking to win them to the cause of living for Christ in amazement of all that he's done and all he really is. And yet I remember, particularly as a new pastor, that people would come to you for counseling at different times. It would often be about relationships, right? Because what youth want to talk about often is, I want a boyfriend, I want a girlfriend. And then they find somebody, they're like, this is the one, this is the one, it's the one. How do I do this? And so they would come to us and they would chat about what it is to have a relationship. And they'd sit there and lie down and be like, listen, we just want to talk to you about relationships. And then the parents would want to sit us down and talk about relationships. And they're like, okay, how do you do it? And I remember the often repeated phrase in our house was, well, I can tell you what not to do because that's the way we felt about so many different things. So many people had questions, but it's like, look, you know, I'm kind of looking back at our relationship thinking, no, it wasn't great, and that didn't go well for us. We kind of blew it there, and when this was happening, that didn't really help us at all. And so you kind of felt a bit of a fraud. They come to you for pastoral help, but all you're telling them is all the things. Listen, I wouldn't do that. That's what I did. I definitely wouldn't do that again. And I found that this wasn't just happening in relationships. This was happening in pastoral ministry kind of everywhere. Well, oh, yes, I understand. I can relate. Oh, I wouldn't do that. This is what I did. I found myself saying I wouldn't do that. Or here's what's not to do quite a lot. And over time, I, I think I grew in understanding God's word and I just got older and so I started to understand maybe what to do instead. But early on in pastoral ministry, I said the phrase, here's what not to do a lot. And in so many ways, as we come to Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, I think the verses that are placarded over the entire experience or the phrase that is placarded over the entire text is simply this. Here's what not to do. Do not do this. Do not copy this, but learn from them. And that's not just come from me. That's not my pastoral wisdom. That's not my assessment of the text. It is God's assessment of the text because here we have a group of verses and a scene that is used again and again and again by other biblical writers. And every time the phrase that goes over it, in effect, is don't be like them. Learn from them. Learn from their negative example. Here is what not to do. And so what we have here is a cautionary tale. A cautionary tale of what not to do. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6 then. The Apostle Paul himself, having just talked about this very scene, having just talked about what takes place here, 
says, now these things took place as examples for us, the church, that we might not desire evil as they did. And then he continues, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Now these things happen to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction. See, what we have here is biblically defined a cautionary tale, an illustration, a living and true illustration of what not to do. Why? So that we may learn from them and not desire evil as they did. That we may not copy their example. We may learn from their example for the glory of God. And so my hope and my prayer today is that we would learn from their example. And as the psalmist says in Psalm 95, verses 7 to 8, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as they did at Meribah and as they did at Massa in the wilderness. This text right here. Don't do it. Don't desire evil as they did. Learn from their mistakes. Do not harden your hearts if you hear his voice. So my hope and prayer today is that we wouldn't harden our hearts. We'd say, Lord, help me. If this is me, help me see. Lord, help me to learn in the process of sanctification. Help me to understand how I'm to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, even in the midst of the wilderness times. That's what they're experiencing here, wilderness. And God wants to teach us about what it looks like to walk in the wilderness well for his glory. So two points this morning, not complicated. Number one, what not to do. We will examine the text. We will giggle at the text in places. We will try and understand what is going on in the text. And we will understand this is what not to do. And then we're going to look, second point, at what to do. Because the Bible has a lot to say about what to do. And we don't just pick random texts when it comes to what to do. There are many texts in the Bible that look back on this very scene and say, here is how you can avoid that being your reality. So that'll be point two, what to do. So number one, what not to do. What are we not to do as Christians? Here, it's simple, it's not complicated. We are not to grumble against the Lord, nor test the Lord. As Christians, as God's people, we should never, ever grumble against him, nor should we test him. The two things that the people of Israel are doing right here, right now in the story. See, grumbling has been a theme and a feature of the Israel journey thus far, is it not? They are a bunch of moaners. They moan. I mean, if there was an Olympic sport, they would get a gold. I mean, they are just complaining and grumbling and moaning throughout the entire time. And surely they should have known better. God, by his grace, has just saved them. They've cried out to him for mercy and grace. They've known slavery their entire lives. God comes after them through his servant Moses. He saves them. He even brings them through the Red Sea. But they moan and they grumble. So he saves them from Egypt and he brings them out and he stands them up against the Red Sea. And here's what we read, Exodus 14, verses 11 through 12. It says, They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. It is shocking. It is audacious. It is loud. It is frightening. 
God has just released them from slavery. He is there in the cloud, right there. He's led them to where he is, and their disposition is, you're an idiot. Well, he then saves them again. In his grace and his mercy, he leads them through the Red Sea. They get to the other side, what do they do? They sing a song. We love you again. I've changed my mind. I like you. I'm singing to you. I trust you. You're glorious. You know how long that song lasted? Three days. And then they get thirsty. And so they arrive at a place called Mara, and they're really thirsty. They run to it. They start tasting it, and the water's bitter. Well, they do what they do best. Exodus 15, verse 24, and the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what should we drink? I'm thirsty. Where is he now? Why is he not helping me now? Well, God in his grace, again, ministers to them, turns the bitter water into sweet water. They drink to their fill. Over two months, it seems to go quiet until they get hungry. Their food starts to run out. You would assume by now they would hit their knees and say, Lord, you can provide all things for us. We trust you. We know you're good. We know you're God. No. No, let's grumble at him instead. Exodus chapter 16, verses two through four. And the whole congregation, the whole of them, two million people moaning. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly for this hunger. <laughs> you just think, oh my gosh, what are you doing? He's provided for you again and again and again. He saved you again and again. He's shown you mercy again and again and you're grumbling over him because you're a bit peckish? Well, yeah, actually, yeah. Yeah, who does he think he is? God. He provides them in his grace again. What mercy. I would have given him a slap. Just said, you know what, guys? Never mind, I'll leave it. I'll find somebody else. I could understand it if you'd done that. But he is faithful and he is gracious and he is committed to his people. So once again, he provides food for them. Quail and then manna, each and every day of their lives, providing manna. He does it for 40 years. Keeps providing for them again and again, enough for the day that they're in. And then, a few days on again, they get thirsty again. Now I'm thinking, I think I've seen this movie before. They're thirsty. I think we know what happens. Just two months ago, we know what happens. You cry to God for grace, he'll help you. You don't complain, right? Don't complain. What do they do? Complain. They grumble. Exodus chapter 17, verse 3. This is the fourth time now they're grumbling against the Lord. But the people thirsted there for water in Rephidim. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? It is... Shocking. See, my friends, it doesn't take long to realize why grumbling against the Lord is such a horrible thing. Because grumbling against the Lord calls his character into question and casts aspersions on him. And that's exactly what Israel was doing every time. This wasn't just them being insecure and fearful. No, it was more than that. 
Each and every time, what they're doing is looking God in the eye and saying, you don't care about us. You owe me more. How dare you do this? You say you're loving, you clearly don't love me, I'm thirsty. You say you're all faithful, well, where's the food now, big guy? You say you're gracious, I ain't feeling no grace, you clearly let us out here to die. You say you're caring, no, you're manipulating us. How dare you do what you're doing? I can't believe you. You say you're faithful and sovereign and good and powerful, but I ain't feeling it. When we grumble against God, we do exactly the same thing. And they are doing it here to the max. And every single time, they're questioning his character. They're questioning his integrity. They're questioning his truthfulness. So no wonder God is against it. Surely they should have known better. Don't you think? God has just saved them. You've spent your whole life in slavery. Your whole life in chains to Egypt. You've been crying out to God for years and decades. Lord, please help us. And it says in the word that he heard their cry, he saw their need, and he came after them. Didn't have to, but he did. By his grace, he saved them. He doesn't just save them. He allows them the opportunity to plunder Egypt. They come out with silver and gold and jewelry, all sorts of things. He leaves them all out, two million people that have been in chains and bondage. They complain a bit, so he leads them through the Red Sea. It's a miracle of incredible grace. Water on either side of the sea, and you're walking through on dry ground. And then you get to the other side, you see him wipe out the entire Egyptian army, and you don't then find yourself thirsty, saying, oh Lord, could you help us with thirsty? You're like, see, you've let us down again. It's questioning his character. You're just playing with me. You're teasing me. You say you love me, you don't. You say you're gracious, you're clearly not. You say you're powerful, well, I ain't feeling it. And they do it again and again and again. Casting aspersions on his character, calling his character into question, they should have known better. But they're not just grumbling. Pay attention. They're testing him. Says it twice in the text. Verse 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? See, Moses knew full well, you're talking to me, but your beef isn't with me, your beef's with him. Why are you grumbling against the Lord? Why are you testing the Lord? And then he says it again in verse 7, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? You know, at the start of this text, the name of the place was Rephidim. But by the end, Moses has renamed it Massa and Meribah. And if you pay attention to the bottom of your Bible there, it says that Massa means testing and Meribah means quarreling. He renames the very name of the place after two million people's moaning and testing of the Lord. They are not just grumbling in this moment. They are testing the Lord. You see, the word there for testing in the Hebrew is the word rib. And the word rib in Hebrew simply means covenant lawsuit. You know what they're doing in this moment? Two million people are suing God. That's what they're doing. No wonder then that testing the Lord is such a horrible, horrible thing. See, they should have known better. 
This is the loving, ever faithful King of kings and Lord of lords that stands before them. In grace and mercy, he has saved them, he's loved them, he's shown them faith, he's showed them provision again and again and again. They moan at him and he comes back to them with grace. They grumble at him, he comes back to them with grace. They ask for things, he loves them. He seeks to help them in any way that he can for their good and his glory. And yet now they're suing him. Two million people, in effect, literally gathered round God himself saying, right, we're not in the dock, you are. We're fed up of your little tests. We're gonna test you, big guy. If you are who you say you are, then you get in the dock and you answer to us. The throne of judgment, Israel now wanna sit on that. And they want God in the dock. And they got a few questions for him. If you really love us, then provide food. If you really love us, provide drink. If you really love us, then give me what I need. They are testing God. They are putting him to the test. They are calling him into the dock. Oh my, what a shadow of Calvary this is. As the same people one day say crucify him. The very one that came after them. The very one that they helped to kill. Spitting on him, beating him. Do you see the shadows? Calvary has already begun in Exodus chapter 17. It's all going to lead us to the killing of Jesus. Israel's already started its complaint. It's already started its grumbling against God himself. They are committing in this moment a covenant lawsuit against the ever-faithful, loving king of kings. They have no idea who they're talking to. And as we look on, it is cringeworthy, isn't it? It's one of those moments where you're just like, ah, it's, it's painful. It doesn't take long to realize then why grumbling against the Lord and testing the Lord are such horrible things. And so no wonder the biblical writers, so many of them, look back to this scene and this text again and again and again and explain to us, here's what not to do. Do not be like them. No wonder they point back time and time again to this cautionary tale and say, do not grumble and do not test the Lord like they did at Massa and Meribah. This is a wonderful cautionary tale. And in all honesty, my friends, as I've considered this, not just this week, over the last few weeks, because all these texts are interlinked, the more you realize this is a cautionary tale that we so desperately need. That's why it's here. Because God knows you're going to need this. And particularly in times of wilderness, when we go through difficulties in our life, grumbling and testing can so easily then become a feature in our lives, can't they? When things are good, we're sweet. We love God. Oh, praise his name. But then in the wilderness, the temptation to grumble Temptation to test, oh my, it's huge. See, it's easy to point the finger at the Israelites. That's not hard. We do that naturally. Oh, terrible. Look at you, terrible. Look at them, they're terrible. It's the Israelites. But what we need to understand is when we're pointing at the Israelites, there are three fingers pointing right back at us. These bad boys. They're pointing right back at us. And here's the reality. The moment we find that in any way we are grumbling against God, 
The moment we find that in any way we are looking at God and saying, you just, I deserve more than this. You owe me more than this. I can't believe you've done that. Why would you do that? And we start grumbling against him. My friends, in that moment, when we see that, we need to also behold then the Israelite in us. Why? Because that, in that moment, you and I also are calling God's character into question and casting aspersions on him. See, it is the cry of one who is in the wilderness walking through a health challenge and then is tempted to look at God and go, you're an idiot. If you really loved me, you wouldn't let this happen to me. If you were really faithful, this would never happen. If you were really sovereign and powerful, this wouldn't be occurring in my life. And because I can't understand why it is occurring in my life, it's your fault. It's the cry of the one in the wilderness who's walking through a relational challenge. And it is a difficult one. They are in the wilderness and it is difficult. But in the midst of the wilderness of the relational challenge, their temptation yet again is to say, I can't believe you've let this happen. I thought you loved me. I thought you were there to show me grace and mercy. Where is it now, big guy? I thought you were there to be faithful to me, but I ain't feeling no faithfulness right now. I'm feeling your unfaithfulness. You don't love me. You're not showing me grace. You're not showing me mercy. It's the cry of the one in the wilderness who's walking through a financial challenge, a serious financial challenge. It is difficult. And instead of then trusting God and relying on his word and giving faithfully to the Lord and entrusting their lives to him, no. They look back at God instead and say, it's clearly your fault. It's clearly your fault that I've made every decision in my life. It's clearly your fault and you are for it. You say you, say you love me, I am feeling it. You show me grace, I don't see it. You said you're ever faithful, I don't think you are. I seem to be panicking right now, this seems to be a problem. You say you won't give me more than, you hand, than I can handle. I can't handle it, it's your fault. The Israelites should have known better. Sovereign grace, so should we. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Dead. When he found you, you were dead. Unable to do anything about it. You weren't just in the water with your hand up saying, help! You were in the water with your face down, dead. And yet God in his grace came swimming after you and grabbed you and pulled you to the shore and breathed life into you. The right time then he forgave you of your sin. He redeemed you to himself. He reconciled you to the Father. He then adopted you into your, his very family where he said, listen, I will care for you and love you and show you mercy again and again and again. And it may not always look like you think it will look, but I will be there. And heaven will be your home because I'm going to carry you all the way to the end. And you know, you know you're going to make it because I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance, guaranteeing you will make it. And each and every step of the way, whether you be in times of joy or wilderness, I'll be with you. And I'll be at work, working all things for your good and my glory. And your good is not health and wealth. Your good is becoming more and more like my son. That's what he's busy doing here for Israel. They can't see it. But as Christians, we can also miss it too, can't we? 
My friends, the moment we find that in any way we are grumbling against God, then in that moment we too need to behold the Israelite in us. The moment we're wagging our fingers if it's his fault, we need to understand, listen, he's not the one being judged here. He's not the one being tested here. You are. You're the one being tested. Are you going to pass it or fail like the Israelites? The moment we find in any way we are grumbling against God, in that moment we need to behold the Israelite in us, and likewise, the moment we find in any way we are putting God in the dark and testing him, then in that moment too we need to behold the Israelite in us. The moment then we're tempted to be angry with God. I can't believe he would let this happen in my life. I can't believe it. I don't even want to talk about it. I'm not even going to group tonight because they'll ask me about it and I ain't going to talk about it. Why? Because I'm angry with him. And some people say, oh, I'm not angry. No, no, I'm not angry. I'm fine. Well, you don't sound fine. See, not everybody in their anger gets loud. You know what some people do? They get quiet. So you just don't see him for weeks. Why? Because they're angry. I ain't going to sing at him. I ain't going to rely on him. Look what he's done. Look what he's allowed to happen here. If he was faithful, it wouldn't be like this. If he was loving, it wouldn't be like this. If he was kind, it wouldn't be loving like this. If I was God, I would never let this happen. Therein lies the problem. Your God version is this big. The God is the vast. He sees all things. You just don't trust him. My friends, when we are tempted to get angry with the God, when we start to give God the loud treatment or indeed the silent treatment. And worst of all, when we say to God in the dock, get in the dock, if you really love me, then prove it. Get me the wife that I need. Get me the finances I need. If you really love me, heal me. And if I ain't heal, I'm gonna do something drastic. I'll leave you. That's what Israel did. I think Christians for generations have been doing exactly the same thing. Instead of God being at the center of all things where we bow the need to trust him, we put him at the center in the dock and we say, you are my God and you're on a lead and I think of you like a genie. So if you really love me, then prove it. He's not a performing seal. He's God. How dare we put God to the test. Now I'd have to say in, in all my pastoral ministry, I find these counseling appointments the hardest because sometimes when you hear people's anger towards God, I am I'm left with my mouth open, not because of their sin. I'm left with my mouth open wondering, is there no fear of God before your eyes at all? Are you aware who you're talking about? This is the Holy One of Israel. This is the one who we will see on Mount Sinai that says, get them away from me, otherwise I will strike them down. Thank God. This is the one who sent his son to die in your place so that you would have life. And you still want to put him in the dock because you're a thousand dollars short and proving it? If you love me, prove it. Are you really saying his son's sacrifice was not enough to you to prove it? You want more? 
Friends, the moment we find ourselves putting God in the dock and testing him is the moment we need to behold the Israelite in us. And in light of who God really is and what he has told us in his word, grumbling against him and testing him really should have no place among us. Amen? It should have no place. I thank God then for this cautionary tale. It's a warning, a warning from scripture. Do not. But it's also more than that. Because I thank God then for the way the rest of Scripture unpacks this tale. And it does then help us see, how can I ensure then in my life I not be a grumbler? And how can I ensure in my life I do not put God to the test? God doesn't leave you guessing, okay? He doesn't say, okay, don't do this. Wonderful. He doesn't. No, he says, don't do this. Here's how not to do it. He wants to help us. He's a faithful and kind and loving father. I love the way scripture works like this. That's why we need to ensure that when we're preaching, we complete the texts. Understand where it is in the Bible and understand what God has to say about it because often he has quite a lot to say about things. So what are we to do? That's my second point. What are we to do? If we want to, in our lives, ensure that we not grumble, we not test the Lord in the midst of the wilderness, what are we to do? Well, three things. Number one, We are to work hard to forget not his works. We're to work hard to forget not his works. They're not my words. They are the words of the psalmist in Psalm 106, verses 8 to 14. The psalmist is talking about this situation. Here's what he says. Yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. And he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered the adversaries. Not one of them was left. They believed his words and they sang his praise. It's going well. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. It was going so well. He saves them. He shows his might and majesty to them. They sing, you're worthy of all praise. And then they forget. What happens when they forget? They start complaining. See, the Israelites have got a bad case of spiritual amnesia. Every time they look away from the Lord, they forget everything he's done. It's as if he doesn't even exist. And the whole point of the psalm is to us is, listen, church, you must not forget. If you want to ensure that you don't emulate their example of grumbling and complaint and testing, they forgot. You must not forget. That's the point. Don't forget his mighty works. See, my friends, that's why it's so important that as a church, we not move on from the cross. So it's so important we not move on from the gospel of Jesus Christ. David Pryor says it's at the cross that we see the Lord and it's so important then by his grace that we not move on from the cross but only ever into a deeper understanding of the cross. Why? It's because at the cross you see his works. It's at the cross you see his majesty and splendor and grace and mercy and love and sovereignty and power. To the cross, all mingled together. We see the mighty works of God. And that's why it's so important that we not move on from the cross as a church. 
It's not only that we don't move on the cross. If we gather around the cross, we will always guard ourselves from legalism, subjectivism, and condemnation. Always. We will always be tempted towards legalism. We will always be tempted towards subjectivism. We will always be tempted towards condemnation. But if we stand near Calvary, we will guard ourselves from those things. But that's not all we guard ourselves from. When we stand near the cross, we also guard ourselves from grumbling. Why? Because when you're standing near the cross where Jesus Christ gave his life away for you, it's very hard then to look back and start whining at him and grumbling of why have you not done this? He's hanging in your place. The problem is we stop looking at that and we start going over it. That's what Israel did. And the point of scripture is you must not do the same. We must forget not his works. That's why it's so important, I think, as a church, we regularly and ongoingly revisit the gospel. And when I say regularly and ongoingly, I mean daily. Why? Because daily you will drift away. Daily you will forget his works. Daily. We all struggle with spiritual amnesia. It wasn't just a disease for the Israelites. It's called humanity. Daily, we will move away from the glories of all he's done. And so daily, we have to remind ourselves of what he's done. So I want to encourage you afresh to regularly review the gospel. Spend time in God's word reviewing the glories of Calvary. Get good books on the gospel and read them and digest them. Do all you can to stay near the cross where the sparks of it fall upon you. That's why we also need to regularly listen to good gospel-centered songs. You know, songs have the wonderful ability to form the theme tune of our lives, don't they? Well, what theme tune do you want? (laughs) You know, get good gospel-centered songs into your heads and into your hearts and into your minds. There's nothing better in my life than having gospel-centered songs on and then hearing the kids starting to sing them. They may not even realize they're gospel-centered. I don't care, but they're singing good stuff. I want the gospel and his works and his word to be the theme tune of our lives. We can do the same. Don't waste your commute. Everybody, I hear people complain, my commute is so huge, I'm so bored. Wonderful! An hour of gospel-centered songs to let the word of God to dwell in you richly. It will revolutionize your day. You won't be sad that you're stuck in traffic. You'll be thrilled. Look at what Jesus has done for me. I would have never been reminded of this if it wasn't for that car. Thank God for that car. (laughs) Changes things. It's a question of perspective. And we need to regularly review your gospel story. Your gospel story. See, when we're remembrant of our gospel story, I was dead. I was running away from him. I didn't care about him. I didn't want him. But he ran after me. And then he sent his son to die for me. And now I stand here saved by his grace alone. It's a scandal. When we do that, you're less likely to go back and say, I cannot believe you've done this. Because you're so thrilled at what he has done. And you're so resting on his character because you see his character in your past and you know he'll be faithful to the end. My friends, if we are serious about avoiding grumbling, fleeing from this cautionary tale, we are to, number one, work hard to forget not his works. That's not all. Number two, we are to live dependent upon the rock. 
I love the way scripture comes alive on this point because here's the point. Exodus chapter 17, there is a rock, right? What happens? God says, take your staff, hit the rock, and the rock will provide for the people of God. Not complicated. More than it seems. Because here's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 4, talking about the rock. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the spiritual food, and all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. Wow. He's talking about Exodus chapter 17. Then he says this, and that rock was Christ. The rock in Exodus chapter 17 pointed to a greater rock to come. It pointed to the wonderful provider of all. It pointed, Paul tells us, to Jesus. That rock always pointed to another. It pointed to the one who would not just quench human thirst, but would quench spiritual thirst. The one who would give life and that in abundance. The one who would give food to eat and drink to, to delight in to their full. And 2,000 years ago now for us, Jesus Christ came, the one that the rock always pointed to. And in John chapter 7, verse 37, at the Feast of Booze, he stands up and in a loud voice says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. A feast that was all designed to point back to what happened in the wilderness. He stands up and says, that rock was me. You're thirsty? Good. That's why I came. If you're thirsty, then come and drink. And he says the same thing in chapter 4, verse 14. For whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Indeed, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. It's wonderful. He promises us water to drink. He's not just making a promise there to unbelievers. He's promising sustenance for believers. You're thirsty? You're in the wilderness? I've got you. If anyone's thirsty... Come to me and drink. I'll give you the water that you need to get through the day. Anybody weary? I've got water for you. Anybody hungry? I've got water that will satisfy any hunger. Anybody thirsty? Come and drink. No wonder then Paul can say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. No wonder our forefathers could say, let's stand firm and fear not and see the salvation of our Lord. No wonder today we can sing, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Because therein lies the point of Christianity. I can't do it. I'm in the wilderness, and I suck. But he can do it. And he said he's with me. So Lord, I'm coming to you and I'm drinking. Lord, help me in the midst of the wilderness. Help me to keep a good attitude here. Help me to see where you are. Help me to trust you. Lord, I can't do this by myself. I need you. And God says, oh, okay, sounds like you're thirsty. I'll give you what you need to drink. My grace will be sufficient for you. Keep going. Keep running. This isn't an accident. I'm still at work right now, no longer saving you, sanctifying you. I'm busy at work. 
But we were never expected to walk off and not rely on him. We need to drink of him each and every day of our lives. My friends, if we are going to avoid grumbling and testing, we are to work hard not to forget his works. We are to live dependent upon the rock. And then number three, we are to recognize and realize our need for others. So according to scripture, you don't just need Jesus, though you do need him. You need others to be Jesus to you as well. And they're not my words. They're God's words. Hebrews 3, verses 7 to 13. Once again, talking about Exodus chapter 17. He says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, as you hear, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Here's the application. So take care then, brothers, lest there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's genius. And what he's telling us is, listen, when you're going through the wilderness and you're going through difficulty, you need Jesus, but you need somebody to be Jesus to you. Given the deceitfulness of sin, given how it will distract us and seek to pull us away, you're going to need friends. They're going to say, whoa, where are you going? In the midst of your discouragement, you're going to need people to encourage you. In the midst of your questions, you're going to need people to give you answers. In the midst of your discomfort, you're going to need people to comfort you. In the midst of your confusion, you're going to need people to bring clarity. You are going to need Jesus, but you are going to need somebody to be Jesus to you. And so take care then, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, namely a complaining heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Don't do it. Take care. As long as it is called today, don't stop meeting together. Keep meeting together. Keep stirring one another on. Keep encouraging one another and praying for one another. Don't stop meeting. What is the one thing we feel like doing most when we go through the wilderness? Being by ourselves. And it's the one thing God says, don't do that. You need the people around you more now than any. My friends, we need people. We need Jesus. We need people to be Jesus to us. I need people. When I am discouraged, I need people to encourage me. When I am complaining, I need people to faithfully say, Hey, Dave, just, just a question. Do you think that might be grumbling against God? I need that. I need people in my life. I love preaching. I love being your pastor, but I, I pastor as a sheep. I'm just the same. We all need Jesus, but we also need people. My friends, what we have here in front of us is a cautionary tale, a cautionary tale which is designed by God to help us see what not to do. Don't grumble. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
I thank God, though, that he not only gives us this tale and then leaves us, he gives us this tale and he helps us to see then the way of escape. How we can live for his glory in the midst of the wilderness. How we can avoid, passionately avoid, grumbling and testing. And so would we apply this for his glory? Recognizing and realizing our need for others, working hard not to forget his works, and more than anything, living dependently upon the rock. Jesus is your hope. Jesus is your answer. So may we run to him, not to complain, but to rely on him and to give him all the glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, your word is wonderful. Your word is complete, it is equipping. It is sufficient and necessary. And Lord, your word brings life to our souls. Lord, did you help us to ensure that we not be a church that crumbles nor tests you? Lord, I do pray for all those that this morning have been convicted by the reality of this in their life. Lord, I thank you that in you there is forgiveness. <laughs> that when we go to you and we say, Lord, I recognize I've been sinning against you that you run back and say, I know, and I forgive you. Lord, I pray that there would be no individuals leave this room today condemned. But I do pray where necessary we would leave the room convicted and desirous for grace-motivated change. Lord, we want to be like you. We want to live lives that trust you. We want to live lives of testimonies of your grace, even in the midst of difficulty, saying, I trust you. I love you. I know that you are good. So Lord, help us to apply the scripture. Help us, as James says, not just to be people that see our faces in the mirror and go away and make no changes. Help us to see our faces in the mirror and go away and make changes so that we may be blessed in our doing. And may all glory go to you. In Jesus' name, amen.